0: Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, my name is Roger Pilon. I'm the director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies, which is your host uh, this afternoon. Um, there was a time uh, two centuries ago when if you wanted to understand government, uh, you needed to read political philosophy, uh, not to be confused with modern political science, which you needed to consult if you wanted to understand government uh, during and for a period after the progressive era. But over the past 40 or more years, uh, it's to the law schools that you have to look, as Wally Olson argues in his new book, Schools for Misrule, Legal Academy, Academia, and the Overlawyered America. uh, The ideas that emanate from the nation's law schools in one generation often wind up shaping law and national policy in the next. For more than four decades, the nation's law schools have been a hatchery of bad ideas, he argues, from tort and contract theories to class actions, environmental law, racial reparations, the recasting of domestic policy differences as questions of international human rights, and more. Yet the common theme is to confer power and status on the school's own graduates and faculty as law pervades ever wider areas of life. The pipe dream of training up philosopher monarchs, he argues, distracts law schools from their genuinely useful function of training competent, ethical, and suitably humble practitioners of the law. Well, in this book, he Skewers the law schools, especially the prestige law schools, starting with Yale, his own alma mater, and Harvard Law School, the Ford Foundation, which has underwritten so much of this um, mischief, and other institutions that have brought us to the state of affairs that we're in today with respect to the power of the law schools over our culture. Wally Olson is a senior fellow now at the Cato Institute Center for Constitutional Studies. Prior to joining Cato, He was a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and has been a columnist for Great Britain's Times Online as well as Reason. His writing appears regularly in such publications as the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and the New York Post. He's appeared numerous times before Congress and advised many public officials. The Washington Post has dubbed him the intellectual guru of tort reform. His approximately 400 broadcast appearances include all the major networks, CNN, Fox News, PBS, NPR, and even Oprah, where he doubtless discussed the finer points of tort law. (laughs) Wally's book, uh, The Rule of Lawyers, uh, was hailed in leading publications, including Forbes, The American Lawyer, and Barron's. The Excuse Factory, his 1997 book on litigation in the workplace, was met with accolades in the London Times and the ABA Journal. His widely discussed first book, The Litigation Explosion, was cited by Justice Sandra Day O'Connor in a major Supreme Court case. This new book, uh, which has just been released, uh, will be available for purchase uh, at a discount outside, and I urge you to get a copy because it is an explosive book that covers a vast area of law. Uh, on the web, he founded and continues to run Overlawyer.com, widely cited as the oldest blog on law, as well as one of the most popular. Please welcome Wally Olson.
1: Thank you so much, Roger. Thanks to the Cato Institute. Thanks to Judge Ginsburg for uh, coming out, and thanks to all of you today. Um, actually, Roger, we got more Uh, serious discussion of civil procedure on the Oprah show than we ever managed to get on PBS. But uh, when I started out on uh, this book, its original working title was Ten Bad Ideas from the Law Schools and How They Changed the World. And it seemed logical. I had been writing books about uh, the strange and sometimes crazy things that our legal system is capable of doing. And I have been blogging for, it's now 11 years or so, uh, on the same themes at overlawyer.com. And again and again and again, uh, when I would write about some <coughs> batty area of law and the bizarre things that our lawyers and courts courtswomen do with it, uh, trace it back not too many years, and what do you know, there was an academic writing in that area. If you complain about the American tort law system, for example, uh, you uh, should take a moment to blame the late Dean uh, William Prosser of Berkeley, whose writings completely dominated the field of torts and taught everyone what to think over a generation or two in the legal system. Uh, If you worry that Our sexual harassment law has gone too far. You should uh, beam good wishes or something at Catherine McKinnon, uh, the professor who uh, more or less single-handedly invented that area. And so it is with employment law and and many other areas. Uh, In one of my books, I talked about What was then a visionary application of uh, academic thinking and has since, uh, like so many of these, turned into real life law, uh, namely the crusade against luxism in the workplace and elsewhere, You may remember that uh, D.C., as well as some other cities around the country, has passed ordinances making it unlawful to discriminate on the basis of looks uh, because it was considered unfair that really great-looking people were getting hired more often and making piles more money than the rest of us. And this has led already to legal controversies in which uh, retail clerks uh, with so many tongue piercings that it actually imposed a speech impediment on them um, uh, sued over their firings, saying in, the, in the one such article, "This is what got me fired." <laughs> um, and <clears throat> but to some of this, us, this was not so surprising because uh, more than ten years ago, the Harvard. Uh, Law Review, uh, published an um, endless, it was like 90 pages or so, article on the need for the law to address sexism in the workplace, and I'm sorry, sexism, luxism, uh, uh, to uh, come up with stronger legal remedies for the tyranny of the uh, terrific looking, and... um, And this uh, this was not marginal stuff. I mean, aside from it actually uh, uh, being translated into later uh, legislation, uh, this was in the Harvard Law Review. And it was written by uh, someone who went on in later years to uh, the editorial page of the New York Times, where he wrote their editorials on legal subjects, so you knew he had to be serious. Uh, And he's now teaching at Yale. Uh, So again, do not assume just because an idea is very wacky that uh, it won't get extreme academic endorsement and then uh, wind up affecting real-life litigation, because it happens constantly. Uh, The slavery reparations uh, litigation movement I write about at chapter length in the book, and uh, over most of the history of that idea, it was a very marginal idea that uh, was not taken very seriously, but By 1999, uh, the uh, best-known group of slavery reparations lawyers was being led by Charles Ogletree of Harvard, uh, the head of Harvard's clinical programs, one of the best-known faculty at Harvard Law. Um, So it is their involvement that can make the difference between something that uh, people consider a joke and something that people have to take seriously. Uh, Rights to sue on behalf of animals, on behalf of whales or great apes, Um, uh, you know, I heard a few laughs out there. Don't let let that laughter die on your lips, because all sorts of really prestigious law professors are um, on board with the idea that uh, whales deserve a lawyer named uh, on their behalf. I still can't figure out if two different lawyers both want to represent the same whale, um, (coughs) how it is decided. I think the whale itself should be asked to decide. But uh, this is all, uh, if not yet, translated into law in our courts. It is certainly taken very seriously indeed in legal academia. Well, eventually, I had to abandon the uh, ten bad ideas from the law school 's uh, framework for the book because of the obvious objection that I kept getting from people, which is Mr. Olson, only ten where Where are you going to stop? How long is this book going to be mr olson and <coughs> So I um, kept what I think was the the core, though, because as I kept on researching and writing up the bad ideas, I realized that there were patterns, that it wasn't just that law schools come up with really bad ideas all the time, but that they keep coming up with certain kinds of bad ideas. Uh, They are not randomly distributed. Uh, Now, some of this is ideological. And I don't think I'm surprising anyone uh, here at the Cato Institute when I say that uh, today's legal academia is not exactly a hotbed of libertarian thinking. Um, we may make it seem so by inviting Randy Barnett and Richard Epstein back again and again and again. But they are not, in fact, entirely representative, uh, much as I might wish, of their colleagues' Uh, And by the same token, nor is legal academia um, uh, ferociously Republican. Uh, Adam Liptak of the New York Times uh, was reporting on this a couple of years ago. uh, Someone actually did a survey of Democrat versus Republican. I know that's very imperfect, but uh, Democrat versus Republican representation on the faculties. Stanford was 28 to 1, uh, Democrat over Republican. Columbia, 23 to 1. Uh, Harvard, uh, according to rumor at least, had gone 30 years without hiring a single Republican, even as it had formed an entire committee to fret about its lack of diversity on its faculty. Um, And John McGuinness of Northwestern Law School um, uh, brings up the famous old line about the um, Anglican Church in the United Kingdom as being the Tory party at prayer uh, because of its socioeconomic profile. And he said that uh, in very similarly, today's legal professoriate is the Democratic Party at the lectern. Well, <clears throat> This has changed somewhat in the last 10 or 20 years. Uh, schools do now typically, especially the best schools, will have a libertarian, um, uh, bright faculty member, often a uh, relatively recent hire, or even sometimes a traditional conservative. Um, they are cautious about having more than one because they might, they might reproduce. But, <laughs> but they, they realize that
0: um, uh, they should at least have that. That sort of thing,
1: well, as I hinted earlier, the, the actual ideological valence of this is only part of the story, maybe not even the most important part of the story. The ideas that keep coming out of legal academia um, give government more to do I mean that this you know is kind of the left uh, approach to things, but beyond just giving government more to do, uh, they give judges more to do and more interesting things to do. They give lawyers, uh, that is to say the graduates of these same institutions, uh, more to do and more interesting things to do. And uh, surprisingly, although it would probably not have surprised Friedrich Hayek, they give legal legal intellectuals much more things to do uh, and much more sway and power in um, uh, (coughs) influencing society. And this is not all that new, you can trace it back probably at least a good century. And I go into a lot of the history in my book, um, early in the 20th century, Roscoe Pound came along uh, as a uh, comet-like success as a uh, legal intellectual, and he said that uh, he described law as applied social engineering, unquote. And of course, if you began thinking of law as applied social engineering, you might need to um, you know, have schools of engineering to train the social engineers. Uh, this uh, intensified, really, in the 1920s and 30s with the rise of the uh, legal realist movement, which wanted to um, empty out law of its, some of its old uh, deductive content and turn it more into uh, an instrument of social policy, as they thought of it, uh, by the time of the New Deal, you had uh, people like Charles Clark, the dean of Yale Law School, uh, and a famous New Dealer uh, who pr- announced, quote, the corporation council of the past decade must give way to the public counsel of the next, unquote. And the stage was really set for uh, a 1943 article that I think was very influential uh, and yet is virtually unknown uh, to the non-legal world. Uh, it was written by Harold Lasswell and Myers McDougall. It appeared in the Yale Law Journal. It was called Legal Education in Public Policy, kind of a boring name. Uh, And it was to become the most widely cited and discussed article ever published uh, on the topic of legal education. Uh, uh, The aftermath of that 1943 article really uh, kind of took up the next several decades in uh, legal academia, Laswell was an interesting figure. He was uh, a uh, trusted New Dealer and indeed FDR's head of wartime propaganda in World War II. He was considered one of the fathers of the field of propaganda. Uh, McDougall was a a Yale law professor in uh, international law. I should mention, by the way, that I'm Yale only undergraduate. So um, there is no likely retaliation for the nasty things that I say, I'm sorry, about Yale Law. No, I say say them in a a loving, critical spirit when I criticize Yale Law. Anyway, um, when Laswell and McDougall were writing, um, some really major things had been happening in uh, the... Uh, field of American law generally. Uh, As we remember, there had been the enormous showdown between FDR and the Supreme Court over constitutional interpretation, uh, in which the switch in time that saved nine had um, basically given FDR the victory. Uh, The uh, Supreme Court, in order to avoid being stacked, um, revised constitutional law so that the modern regulatory state became okay. And So it looked as if uh, the contours of the law, both constitutional law and private law, were changing very, very drastically. And yet one thing had not changed at all, which is law school curriculum. It's a very conservative um, area. They were still teaching things pretty much the way they had been teaching them decades before. And in particular, the point of a law school education was uh, mostly to train to be a private lawyer uh, of the familiar sort that had uh, practiced law on Main Street uh, or for businesses for many years, uh, conserving private wealth for clients, arranging business deals, uh, resolving disputes, all that sort of thing. And... So the law school curriculum, uh, Laswell and McDougall complained as their critique got underway, uh, was still full of courses on things like uh, bills and notes, um, uh, how to replevy a dog, um, the um, very nuts and boltsy sorts of things of the uh, last 100 years. Uh, of American capitalism, and what was needed instead, they said, was a curriculum, quote, oriented toward achievement of democratic values as determined in reference to social objectives, unquote. I'm sure it's very clear what that means. Um, What they meant, they went on to explain, was to de-emphasize things like uh, contract and property as subjects, which were bastions of the old private law. Uh, They sniffed at contract and property as, quote, much favored instruments of the laissez-faire society, unquote. Uh, If you had to have a course in property law, they said, uh, why not use as its jumping off point the planning of public housing projects, for example, uh, or uh, land use planning regulation? And things were no better when you went on to the public law, constitutional law, because they complained. Even though the Supreme Court had um, uh, given off clear signals that this was all changing, uh, they complained. "Quote: The so-called public law courses are still organized with too much deference to quote separation of powers, jurisdiction, due process, equal protection, interstate commerce, etc." Uh, this should change. Getting back to private law, they said uh, the c- curriculum was full of courses like trusts and estates. We should realize that in the radiant new world of tomorrow, private inheritance would not be a major factor. Um, insurance law, they said insurance uh, in the future will be absorbed into the public sector in most recent Uh, and should not be taught as an area of private law. Local government law, they said that time would be better spent instructing students on innovative forms of regional government, such as the Tennessee Valley Authority. And law schools should recognize the need to train lawyers in entirely new tasks that would fall to them in the new world, such as that of determining an appropriate division of income among different sectors of society. In some legal education should take upon itself the job of conscious, efficient, and systematic training for policy making. And it was kind of ingenious because part of the scheme was. Um, uh, Schools will stop teaching all of these old skills, and if they stop teaching it, lawyers will stop practicing it. Lawyer, you know, ninety-five percent of the lawyers will stop going into uh, that business law and 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 main street specialties and so forth. Uh, if they stop teaching all of the old constitutional rules about separation of powers and. Um, private property takings, and so forth. A uh, generation of lawyers would grow up who would not have all of this old mental furniture hanging around their brands. And eventually, although judges were the most hidebound uh, of all of these groups, the judges themselves would stop enforcing them, since they had stopped being taught in schools at some point. Uh, the only thing missing was the phrase dustbin of history. Well. Laswell and McDougall were very unafraid of the charge of indoctrination, as kind of fits the father of the field of propaganda. Um, They said, uh, you know. Conservative critics of the New Deal have been saying that uh, you know that we're trying to turn law schools into some sort of indoctrination centers. This is silly. Uh, indoctrination goes on either way. Teach the old curriculum, and you are indoctrinating people in the old way of doing things. Uh, we shouldn't be afraid of this accusation because everyone is equally guilty of it, a theme we were to hear much more of uh, in decades after that. And they were also very unafraid of the idea that Uh, Lawyers were going to emerge as very different sorts of people uh, in their new planned uh, order for law schools. They were not going to be as client-driven in particular. Uh, You might even say that they were going to be a new technocratic managerial class. Uh, They would have the public interest in mind, unlike those boring old clients of theirs who couldn't see past their own self-interest. Lawyers would be the, uh, these are my words, not theirs, the natural rulers for tomorrow. And law schools would become much more interesting places instead, because instead of all of this teaching of bills and notes and things, they would get to train tomorrow's, I almost said philosopher monarchs, but at any rate, tomorrow's natural gover- governing class. Well... <clears throat> This is wrong on so many levels, Uh, and there is so much that could be said about it. But let me just start by saying that uh, the last Will MacDougall program was terribly, terribly bad just in prediction Um, because it captures a policy moment which only lasted a very brief time. Uh, Expertise in things like regional government, uh, the creation of TVA-like plans, uh, the planning out of public housing projects uh, was very... Uh, temporary, or it was expertise that was in very temporary demand. Uh, 20 years later, uh, no one was particularly interested in many of those same job skills. Uh, at the same time, if you go down the list of constitutional concepts that they said were overemphasized and uh, needed to uh, be you know, tr- treated more briefly, uh, whether it be Equal protection, due process, uh, separation of powers, the distinction between interstate and interstate commerce, uh, all of them, every single one of them, has stubbornly remained to the present day tremendously important, uh, both in legal thinking and in the real-life work of lawyers. So in other words, even if policy were all you cared about, uh, this was terrifically bad advice. And... I might add, parenthetically, that uh, in almost every generation, there are people in the law schools who uh, confidently predict which areas of law will boom, and therefore you should steer students toward taking courses in those areas and which areas of law will shrink. And the predictions are nearly always uh, embarrassingly mistaken. We heard in the 1970s that energy law was going to boom, and of course it didn't. Uh, We heard around the same time that group and prepaid legal practices were going to boom, and and it didn't either that most interesting litigation would go on in federal, not in state courts. That didn't happen either. Uh, and on, on and on. you know, that Divorced lawyers would no longer be needed because we were going to have no-fault divorce, ha, 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 as if that happened. And <clears throat> so uh, the best advice would have been to ignore all predictions about what areas of law were going to boom and which bust, and instead get a general legal training in which you learned how to think like a lawyer and got a wide sort of fund of knowledge. So the the article was tremendously influential nonetheless. Uh, It uh, comforted many professors with the idea that their work was much more important than they realized that their students were going to uh, run the world. No one adopted the program hall for reasons I've already hinted, not even Yale, and yet about 10 years later, Yale Law School made an announcement that kind of rocked the world of legal academia. It announced that it was no longer going to require its students to take a course in property. And this was kind of amazing, because uh, all uh, students wanted to take the bar exam. Property was tremendously important on the bar exam. Uh, Property was tremendously important in all sorts of areas of real-world legal practice. No school had ever tried to do without it, but this was Yale, after all, and its students were so smart that they could crib this stuff in its spare time, although property is a really hard topic. And... That would free up time to talk about really interesting things like policy and and how society should change in order to be more like the way Yale wanted it to be. And no one else, at least for a long time, imitated Yale in dropping property as a required course. And uh, this was in many ways a tribute to the fact that Yale was so prestigious that it could get away with things that no one else could try to get away with. It it was that way that the the stereotype, the image of the Yale professor was that uh, brilliant as he or she might be, they they could come off as a bit adorably clueless if you actually had a legal problem you needed to solve. Uh, There were a couple of famous instances in which uh, even deans of the school had to get a temporary restraining order in an emergency or had to bail someone out of jail and, of course, had no idea whatsoever how to do that. Um, it was as if the professors at the most pre- prestigious medical schools uh, were the ones who were most at a loss if you give them an actual sick patient. And Malcolm Gladwell, a, a couple of weeks ago, had an article in the New Yorker, about law school ratings, uh, in which he pointed out, and I had also concluded this, but he had a great phrase on it. um, The rating system, like the accreditation system, uh, presses schools to become, uh, this is his phrase, more Yale-like, unquote, uh, to have uh, more theory, more interdisciplinary this, more um, law and that, Uh, more heavily published uh, professors uh, at the expense of the other things that law schools might be doing. And again, it probably makes sense for the top six or top ten law schools to uh, be trying to catch up with Yale. But to tell all of them to do that is, to me, it's a little like noticing that Lady Gaga is the number one entertainment act at the moment and judging all other performers by how much they are like Lady Gaga. um, You know, it's just terrible advice for... Uh, nearly everyone who can't get away with it. Well, by freeing up this time, Yale did indeed begin doing lots of really influential things. For example, uh, Charles Reich, well known to the outside world as the author of uh, The Greening of America in 1970, uh, was much more influential for his work on the so-called new property, that is to say um, uh, your welfare benefits or your uh, job as a teacher or your job as a government employee, uh, should be seen as really a new kind of property which the government should not take away from you without uh, elaborate uh, due process and, and perhaps compensation. And this had tremendous effects. It was much better than the old property. Everyone seemed to agree. And it led to uh, a flurry of decisions in the courts uh, which did not quite establish a right to welfare but certainly established a right to s- file many more lawsuits uh, to delay a welfare cutoff uh, same as c- for the right to continue as a government employee and so forth and the history of legal education since then has been a history of uh, phases you might say fads education is not immune from fads, some say it is mostly driven by them and after the rights revolution of the 1960s came the public interest law revolution of the 1970s. Uh, <clears throat> ideas were changing here that lawyers would be sent out to file lawsuits, especially against the government. Uh, they would no longer be sent out to actually staff the government, which is the way Laswell and McDougal had thought about it. They would be sent out to be the power behind the throne by suing the government and making it sign consent decrees. And Constitutional law was uh, uh, revitalized by new theories that the Constitution, instead of being this relatively well-understood older set of uh, instructions on separation of powers and the like, uh, that the Constitution instead, to our delight and surprise, required the uh, institution of the entire agenda of the New York Times editorial page uh, as uh, constitutional law. And this had its day, and it began to decline. And then there followed things like uh, critical legal studies, critical race theory. Uh, the identity politics strains had quite a lot of staying power. I mentioned uh, slavery reparations. Uh, they wound up uh, having enough of a grip on both the faculty and many uh, law students that uh, they continue in their influence to this day. And it brings us to the... Uh, what I read, at least, as the current hot fad in law schools, and that is the field of international human rights. Uh, There is no field, so far as I can tell, that is faster growing in the law schools, where more new centers and endowed professorships are springing up. There is a new section of the American Association of Law Schools on International Human Rights. And If you are thinking of international human rights as the field uh, which goes out and uh, uh, speaks up for dissidents in dungeons and uh, rescues the interests of people who uh, are having their free speech shut down by tyrannical regimes in faraway places, uh, I can tell you that your thinking is very much out of date. It's not that it does does not still have some interest in those areas because it still has some interest in those areas, but the agenda has very much expanded and multiplied and begun to look homeward. Uh, In particular, much of the energy of the uh, international human rights movement at law schools is now directed at correcting the perceived human rights violations of the United States. And I'm not just talking about the overseas uh, national security Guantanamo type ones at all. Uh, I'm talking about things that we would have assumed until very recently were domestic policy issues that were just domestic policy issues, things like the death penalty, which according to uh, many academic authorities is a violation of international human rights, life sentences without parole, uh, which are also said to be that uh, labor law. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've read in the last two weeks, uh, reading the sources that I do, that uh, Governor Walker's policies in Wisconsin and in in general, any cutbacks of uh, what are termed collective bargaining rights for government employees, uh, these are not just a bad idea. These are not just something you should go out and rally against. These are violations of international human rights law, according to uh, many highly placed uh, and respected academics. The right to health care, the right to housing, the right to welfare. Uh, um, Some of you, I think, noticed earlier this year when the United Nations issued a very critical report on the human rights record of the United States, and it went on and on and on. And it was done uh, with much input from various U.S. based groups. Uh, The ACLU is one of the well known ones, but there are a lot of law school based groups Um, among them uh, complaining about various violations by the United States, and so the UN kind of picked up on a lot of these and said the U.S. is a systematic human rights violator in in criminal and penal areas and in lack of social welfare and in uh, lack of adequate equality in, in this and that area. And the Obama administration's response and I should mention, by the way, that the Obama administration's for, uh, Department of State and foreign policy apparatus is heavily staffed up with the same academics uh, who brought international human rights law to its current prominence. I mean, they just moved right over, and you know, admittedly face a different set of incentives now because now they're hearing from some of the staff people. You know, sovereignty actually is important, and you know, we don't want to give this away. Uh, but so, so they aren't behaving exactly as you might have assumed the academics to behave, but. Uh, and even sometimes they're contradicting their old academic positions. But the response of the Obama administration to that critical US, uh, U.N. report uh, was to say, it's so unfair to say that we are not moving toward human rights in healthcare. Why, last year, we passed Obamacare. That moved the United States significantly closer to compliance with its international obligations on health care. And it left me grabbing my head. I didn't, I never realized we had those obligations to adjust our uh, health care funding system in any internationally prescribed direction. Uh, where do we go to read about these things? Why, why don't we know more about it? Um, <clears throat> Well, we will be learning more in the coming years about the right to be free of hate speech, a prescribed international uh, human uh, right, about the right of indigenous uh, tribes to uh, their historic territories, uh, another prescribed uh, right. But let me just mention that you can get it 80 or 90% of the um, near-term agenda by observing that it is uh, the turning into uh, international human rights of our old friend, the policy content of the New York Times editorial uh, section. Uh, it is as if, having tried to constitutionalize all of that 20 years ago, and having found that the actual US federal courts were not having it, uh, they, you know, here and there, uh, they would get a victory. But for the most part, the Rehnquist and Roberts courts have um, politely declined to constitutionalize most of these rights. It is almost as if they have gone back, uh, fallen back in disarray briefly, and come back to report that all of these things are once again required, but as international human rights. Um, I think I will stop on that ominous note and uh, uh, (coughs) wait for uh, Judge Ginsburg's response and then the Q&A. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you, Wally, for that very comprehensive discussion of the book, which, of course, goes into each of those issues in much greater detail. In your uh, final portion where you talked about the uh, international human rights uh, activities, I'm reminded of how it was that the United States just this year went about filing its own report on its own domestic respect or lack thereof of international human rights. They did consult and have meetings with a number of domestic organizations, as you said, like the ACLU, like the the Mexican American uh, Legal Defense Foundation, uh, the uh, NAACP, and so forth. But they also, right at the end of that session, met with uh, the Federalist Society, and I was one of those who participated in that session, and brought to the table Some human rights abuses that were taking place in this country, such as in the area of eminent domain, regulatory takings, uh, forced union dues, and so forth. Needless to say, none of those made their way into the report that was given to the UN Human Rights Council, on which sat such exemplars of human rights respect as Libya um, Zimbabwe and other such uh, countries. In any event, we're now going to hear a commentary on uh, the new book that uh, again is available for you. Schools of Misrule uh, outside, you can get it at a discount, and it is well worth. Uh, Spending some time with this book, if you are interested in legal academia today. We're going to hear from Judge uh, Douglas H. Ginsburg. We're uh, delighted, honored uh, that he is with us today. He was uh, appointed um, to the United States Court of Appeals in November of uh, 1986 in the Court of Appeals in the D.C. Circuit, and he served as chief, chief judge from uh, July 2001 until February of 2008. He's a graduate of Cornell University and the University of Chicago Law School, uh, the class of 1973, the very famous class of 1973, from which uh, many members have gone on to uh, greater glory. Uh, Following law school, uh, he clerked for uh, Judge Carl McGowan on the US Court of Appeals for the DC Circuit and then with uh, US uh, Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall. From 1975 to 1983, he was a professor at Harvard Law School. Uh, He then served as Deputy Assistant Attorney General for Regulatory Affairs, the Antitrust Division. Uh, He was um, in the US Department of Justice from 83 to 84. He was an administrator of the Information and Regulatory Affairs section of the Office of Management and Budget from 84 to 85, then he returned to the Justice Department as Assistant Attorney General for the Antitrust Division. He is currently a distinguished adjunct professor at George Mason University Law School, so he has spent a great deal of time both on the bench and in the legal academy and is ideally suited to comment on Wally's book. Please welcome Judge Douglas Ginsburg.
2: Stay here. Right there. Thank you. Thank you for that reminder of my long career at law schools. Um, indeed, since 1970, when I entered law school, I've been affiliated as a student or lecturer or faculty member for all but six of the intervening years. <clears throat> Pardon me. <clears throat> now, um, law schools are odd. Uh, institutions may be unique in some respects that in that um, there is uh, there has been until recently um, very little attention in law schools, at least in the elite law schools, paid to the demand for their product um, the uh, The uh, number of applications has con- has increased year after year after year. The uh, pay going to uh, new associates until about three years ago had increased year after year. Uh, their gr- their uh, graduates were in, uh, in great demand. Um, and, and so uh, that provided a great deal of slack within the institution. Uh, instead of, um, of catering to an exogenous market demand, Uh, much of what was supplied was really supplied at the instance of the suppliers. That is to say faculty faculty members taught pretty much what they wanted to teach, what was of interest to them, maybe offering some um, more or less required or standard course as the price of then being able to do the rest of their uh, teaching hours in things that uh, interested them from the point of view of scholarship or research. And um, students uh, uh, didn't all enjoy that luxury, but increasingly they did. The uh, Those who were devoted to putting out the law review uh, were not offering a, a product for which there was any market demand. It's driven by the internal dynamic in which they uh, acquire skills from putting out the law review, um, but uh, nobody uh, purchases or reads them in any number. Um, and they're in, utterly immune to any feedback from uh, from the marketplace, uh, however, that might be formulated. Um, students doing uh, clinical work and uh, um, uh, other uh, voluntary activities within law school are incre- have increasingly over those decades pursued the very interest that uh, that Wally Olson described. Uh, in terms of the ideas coming out of law schools. So they were working on, on um, institutional reform litigation, uh, constitutional cases in the Supreme Court. Again, this is at the more elite schools, but the lesser schools, uh, in terms of their uh, their ability to command applications and tuition, um, did the same thing, writ a little smaller within their states, perhaps. Um, and so... Um, and so there's been this evolution under the uh, umbrella of, uh, of protection from, uh, from the marketplace along the very lines that, uh, that uh, Wally has so accurately described. Let me say at the outset, this book is extraordinarily informative, thorough, um, unlike almost anything I read. It is, in all respects where I have personal knowledge, accurate. Um, it is, um, it is really about something much more, though, than, than the law schools. It's about the legal culture, which is manifested and, and greatly affected by what goes on in the law schools. But as the, uh, as the book documents, is a, uh, is, uh, the law schools are just one end or one part of the transmission system by which, uh, by which ideas are um, uh, tested and, uh, in some cases, um, uh, adopted and affect the legal culture in which we live. Near the end of the book, Wally re- um, refers to, uses the phrase lawfare, which I think Don Rumsfeld um, uh, invented as a term for the sort of human rights, or quote, human rights, close quote, litigation, that's used to uh, uh, shape uh, uh, the nation's policies or attempt to, and to hem in the, uh, um, uh, uh, military operations and so on, uh, in the interest of, for instance, protecting literally whales off the coast of Puerto Rico against testing all this sort of thing, um, the phrase "lawfare though is in a way what this whole book is about. if you understand um, if you understand the the uh, law schools or maybe the legal culture as the culture war by other means it 's carried on most. Um, most manifestly and straightforwardly in law schools. One of the things that came out of the book of which I had no prior knowledge, but take on faith because everything else I do know was accurate, was the pervasive role of the Ford Foundation. I had no idea, Wally, just how influential apparently it has been in terms of its backing winning horses and putting money into causes that uh, and i 'm sure they had many things that didn 't stick, but it 's got an uh, extraordinary track record in terms of influence in this uh, legal culture. Um, my only criticism of the book <clears throat> pardon me and it 's not one that um, that the author could overcome because he is not a man of economics and statistics. Uh, my only criticism is the lack of of an attempt to document or at least uh, portray things in quantitative terms uh, at all. Uh, it would be interesting to see, and I think it would be useful. As I think it's a good hypothesis to check. I think that the number of offerings in constitutional law has multiplied many fold over the period covered by this book. Um, I, I see uh, eight or nine hundred applications from law clerks every year. Ninety percent of them are third-year students applying in the fall of their third year for clerkship. <clears throat> Pardon me. And um, they will typically have had uh, a couple of courses in constitutional law, not infrequently three, sometimes four. Um, I ban uh, discussion of constitutional law from much of my, my teaching and seminars. It's the subject that has, that has gobbled up the curriculum. Because it is um, so uh, open-ended, the way it's become, uh, not just taught but practiced by the Supreme Court, there's no proposition too ridiculous to be tested against some uh, constitutional theory. Maybe found wanting, but, uh, but never on the ground that it's, uh, that it's ridiculous or has no uh, apparent connection to anything in the Constitution. Um, it's a platform for law professors, however, to pursue whatever is of interest to them and try to find some uh, constitutional hook. You can think of constitutional law as a sort of metastatic uh, problem in, uh, in law schools. Now, in the last few years, there's been a bit of a backlash, I think, because of the recession. There's much more talk of skills training of um, of uh, there's there's a law school in Virginia, William and Mary, not William and Mary. Pardon me, Washington and Lee, that devotes its third year. This is an experiment, its third year entirely to uh, practice skills. I'm not sure that's a good idea. The jury is out on it, but it's an idea that couldn't have been imagined uh, ten years ago. I think, uh, but it's part of the discussion within the American Association of Law Schools and the uh, ABA more and more the need for practical skills. So there's a limit on the tolerance, at least under current market conditions, for the kind of things that, that Wally's described going on in the, um, in the law schools. Um, and by the way, there has been another th- quantitative uh, hypothesis there has been an observable and significant increase in the percentage of faculty new hires. I would guess it's, it's probably 50% at the elite law schools and 10 or 20% everywhere of faculty members who have a PhD or almost a PhD, ABD, in another field. Um, the um, and, and that that um, the implications of that are not entirely clear, but it, but I think it does reflect a diminution of value placed on lawyering itself, of respect for the profession and for the skills that are involved, and a much greater dependence on exogenous sources of um, of uh, theory now um, one subject that is not mentioned in the book and that has been a matter of great interest to me and significance in the last uh, several years is uh, behavioral law and economics. This is a derivative of behavioral economics, which is a field that has, um, I wouldn't say matured, but has had a good deal of uh, track record in the um, economics departments over the last quarter century. The, the field combines, um, let's say behavioral economics, combines economics and psychology um, to produce a body of experimental evidence that individuals, in their uh, decision making, in their choice behavior, deviate from what would be predicted by uh, neoclassical uh, economics. And these deviations from uh, hypothetical rational choice um, are said to be the result of, quote, cognitive biases, close quote, uh, from which most people um, suffer to one degree or another, um, or at least many people. And these are, these are, in other words, systematic failures to act in one's own best interest because of limitations or flaws in one's decision-making uh, process. So the irrational behavior that's demonstrated through, primarily through experiments, rarely uh, in any market setting, um, the, the irrational behavior breaks the link between um, the revealed preferences, how people act, and their individual welfare, which is the linchpin of neoclassical economics, the assumption that people act more or less in their own interest as they see it. Now, following this, this originates very primitively in 1957 with Herbert Simon's idea of bounded rationality. But it, by the time we were into the, into the late 70s, Daniel Kahneman, who later gets a Nobel Prize for this with his uh, colleague uh, Tversky, who had died and otherwise would have shared in the prize, uh, conducted a long series of experiments and uh, resulting publications from about 76 to 83. Um, that um, document a number of these uh, departures from purely rational behavior, sometimes referred to as uh, cognitive biases, sometimes as heuristics, in which people use a rule of thumb because they can't manage all of the data, or it's not worth it, or they're rationally ignorant. Um, and, um, And Danny Kahneman told me about 15 or 20 years ago, that of all of the things he has done, he would stake his reputation on one, and that is the gap between what people are willing to pay for something and what they're willing to accept for that same thing if they own it. And and this has been re- reproduced time after time in experimental settings, and is accepted as a, uh, a proven uh, phenomenon in the... Uh, behavioral economics literature. Interestingly, in 2005 and 2007, uh, Z- uh, Zeit and Plotter uh, published articles in which they varied the experimental design and showed that these results are not in the least robust. As soon as you expose them to any kind of, of uh, variations that might introduce real-world factors, uh, they, they just, the gap between willingness to accept and willingness to pay just utterly disappears. Uh, those, well, those articles are not widely cited, as I'll, I'll say, uh, and they're in the American Economic Review. They're, 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 they're gold standard articles. Following close on the heels of behavioral economics over the last several years has been the behavioral law and economics movement, which explores the legal and policy implications of these cognitive biases. And the behavioral law and economics regulatory agenda reflects a common philosophical source very uh, favorably summed up in a a, uh, piece by Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler under the term uh, libertarian paternalism. Uh, The seemingly oxymoronic phrase, um, meaning uh, trying to describe interventions, policy interventions, that both uh, increase uh, individuals' welfare by freeing them from the limitations of their own cognitive biases, and secondly, do so without limiting their choices. So a a, a primitive example would be um, providing more information or requiring people who sell things to provide more information or cooling off periods or something like that. So the premise and the promise of behavioral law and economics is to regulate in such a way as to improve uh, economic welfare by, my cl- by, my cl- by more closely aligning each individual's um, ch- actual choices with his, quote, true preferences, meaning unbiased by these without reducing his liberty, uh, at least as it's represented by the number and variety of choices uh, open to him. So some of these proposals, these are all in the law schools. I'm ta- that's why I'm talking about them. Law and economic, behavioral law and economics, some of these proposals would modify legal default rules. For example, uh, for retirement programs, 401K programs, so that an employee has to opt out of the program rather than opting in. Or they manipulate framing effects by, for instance, sequencing the way in which food is offered in a cafeteria so as to encourage people to uh, buy things that are more nutritious uh, as opposed to things that they now buy. Um, cooling off periods found sales, um, um, the, the idea now being implemented, well, prepared, I suppose, by Elizabeth Warren for the Consumer Financial Protection Board of requiring that a, a mortgagee offer a client a, quote, plain vanilla, close quote, government-approved mortgage that is simple, in other words. And before offering them anything that's got any bells and whistles, such as a, uh, a, a, a variable rate, an adjustable rate mortgage, a 15, I guess, as opposed to a 30. I don't know how they'll handle that. Um, and I suppose getting the customer to sign something, saying they've been offered the uh, the first one before they are shown the second one. I'm not sure how that'll be uh, implemented. So the problem is this discipline totally fails, in my view, and I think this is inescapable, totally fails to deliver on its promise to increase welfare as measured by people's own preferences. The crux of the problem, there are several problems, but the crux of it being that it's impossible to measure anyone's true preferences. Once you can't look at their revealed preferences and how they act. You have nothing to go by except this ex- very fragile uh, experimental data about other people, not about you or me, um, which are then misinterpreted to a paternalistic um, conclusion. Um, now, this totally ignores anything, any notion of of the of the value of um, what's what what. Um, I think Amartya Sen referred to as the process value of uh, process aspect of freedom, but it's a concept that originates with Mill and is reiterated by Hayek and by Milton Friedman and others. This is the liberty interest of a public in making its own choices, of individuals not being infantilized, having an entrepreneurial spirit, learning effective decision-making from experience that has no place in the welfare calculus of behavioral law and economics. Now, all right, the influence of this in the law schools is becoming pervasive. This is the present big thing, not the next big thing. The book ends just before this begins. Could I have a slide, please? There's a, somewhere it's supposed to be a screen and a slide. There it is, it's magical. Um, the influence of this is growing. And one, hold the slide a minute, keep the screen, but hold the slide. One recent uh, account in the popular press describes behavioral law and economics as the governing theory of the Obama administration's regulatory agenda, in part because Cass Sunstein, who is really the most articulate and as well as uh, the most uh, frequent uh, spokesman for for this uh, school of thought, It now heads the the office that I headed in the Reagan administration, the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, the so-called regulatory czar at the OMB that looks at over-proposed regulations before they can be issued. Um, This was behavioral law and economics is, from start to finish, the entire concept behind the Consumer Financial Protection Board. Elizabeth Warren's written about it, Michael Barr, from Mich- University of Michigan Law School, who was Assistant Secretary of the Treasury until a couple, maybe a month or two ago, has written about it um, and made specific proposals. Here's another one. No such thing as a credit card that's also a transaction card. You have to pay for something with a transaction card. It could be a debit card. But if, there's a credit, if, if it's a credit card at the end of the month, you owe that, you have to find some other, get another card to do the financing. Why? Because we poor idiots enter into transactions that we don't realize are going to cost us at the end of the month headaches that we hadn't anticipated, blah, blah, blah. Now, the um, question in my mind is what accounts for the increasing interest in this? Wally has accounted for uh, a succession of phenomena that have swept through the law schools. Some have come and gone. Most of them are still there. Um, the, uh, the the uh, the various uh, uh, group rights claims, um, the uh, 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 demands for um, affirmative rights uh, against the government, the human rights uh, movement that he described. Uh, I guess the Indian rights thing has kind of come and gone. Is that right? Still going it's on, turning
1: into an international law demand uh, after the U.S. Supreme Court made clear that d- domestic constitutional law was not going to do it. Okay, so
2: that at least hasn't kept on flowering. So the question is, what accounts for this great increase of interest now in behavioral law and economics? You'd think the plate was full. Well, there have been these fads over the last forty years in in uh, the legal academy. And the amplitude of the waves, I think, has been increasing over time. Starting around 19, uh, late 60s, maybe 1970, uh, the realist school that had dominated the legal academy for decades gave way increasingly to, um, to economic analysis of law. It was in 73 that Richard Posner published his treatise uh, by that title. And there were scores of, of articles analyzing economics of some particular legal doctrine in the journals every year. Uh, and they contributed, I think, greatly to our understanding of the law as an instrument of social control and as a force for the promotion or, st- often, the diminution of our um, economic welfare. Um, and there, there is certainly a continuation of this scholarship today, but it doesn't have quite as large a share of the market as it once did. So um, we'll, we'll darken this enough to see in a moment or two. Well, there you go. So. It, Well, I'm getting ahead of myself with the slide. I'll get to it in a moment. So in something of a reaction to uh, the growing interest in economic analysis, then came a small but prolific cadre of law professors um, creating the critical legal studies movement, which Wally does uh, survey uh, somewhat more briefly than I would have liked in the the book. Uh, And that spawns critical race theory, and critical feminism, and queer theory, as it calls itself, and so on. And it had a significant following, critical legal studies, particularly among faculties at elite law schools. And they advanced the idea that all law, including court-made law, is indistinguishable from politics, and particularly class politics. So as recounted by um, Duncan Kennedy of the Harvard Law School, professor there, a leading figure in the movement, one of the early projects was to, quote, produce a critique of mainstream, e- mainstream economic analysis of law, close quote. This was overtly a leftist movement, but it turned out to be little more than a species of, uh, of Marxism as it had evolved in the hothouse of radical European social theorists such as Michael Foucault, um, uh, Jurgen Habermas, and others of the Frankfurt School of Neo Marxist Critical Theory. Uh, Antonio Gramsci of the Italian Communist Party, um, and so on. And um, the self-declared purpose of the movement was, quote, to provide a critique of liberal, legal, and political philosophy that would show the liberal embrace of the rule of law is actually incompatible with other essential principles of liberal political thinking, close quote. So key to the notion of critical legal studies was, quote, false consciousness close quote, meaning the, quote, holding of false or inaccurate beliefs that are contrary to one's own social interest and which thereby contribute to the maintenance of the disadvantaged position of the self or the group, close quote. That's Duncan Kennedy again. So here we are. It's the presumed gap between revealed preference and true preferences, back in a new form, trying to drive a wedge between reality and the perceptions perceptions of others, to create a space for some combination of re-education and outright coercion. Uh, Kennedy kind of captures or reveals, I should say, the Maoist tendencies in the proposal that professors and janitors at Harvard be required to trade places for one month each year. Um, He describes that as, quote, building a left bourgeois bourgeois intelligentsia that might one day join together with a mass movement for the radical transformation of American society, close quote. Now I raise this, this is ancient history, so it would seem, but it's not. It's behavioral law and economics, warmed over. A new generation, a new vocabulary, it's the same basic idea. It's a little less radical, and certainly less uh, manifestly so. Now, the, 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 the fall of communism around the world dealt a real blow to all leftist movements, obviously. Um, the, the worldwide triumph of socialism, which seems so closely within grasp, uh, seems less probable, to say the least, now. <clears throat> Pardon me. So, with the waning of that option, with CLS and other critical movements waning, legal scholars were in danger by the mid 1990s of being remitted to further work in either economic analysis of law or, heaven forbid, even more traditional doctrinal exegesis. And uh, uh, Wally's book demonstrates that that's not even an option. I mean, nobody wants that within the academy. Uh, the the widespread excitement and the productive uh, fervor of the law and economic scholarship of the 70s and 80s couldn't be uh, recaptured because it had been professionalized. Now there was a Ph.D. economist on all the law faculties, on each of the law faculties. And so uh, it, it, one had to have some, some uh, either, co- either collaborate or have a real knowledge of economics in order to do economic analysis of law. The first generation had been amateurs Posner, Calabresi, uh, Henry Manny, well, he had a PhD, uh, Gordon Tullock, who was not an economist, um, Robert Bork. None of these people were PhD economists except uh, Manny. Uh, but now the serious work in that field is done by PhD economists. So what's an assistant professor to do? You need to, write, you need to write things in order to get tenure. And came the answer, behavioral law and economics, for which no more than a sophomoric understanding of economics is required. And so just as the first wave of, of law and economics scholarship provided hundreds of opportunities to revisit plowed ground and turn up new insights, behavioral law and economics offered a reason to return to the same ground with confidence that the new approach would yield a new result uh, that could be published in one of the more than 550 non-peer reviewed student-edited law reviews. 14, I think, at Harvard. Did you look at the numbers, Wally? See, you don't do numbers.
1: I got the fourteen at Harvard. I do some numbers, yeah. uh, but I was unaware of the five hundred and fifty. I yeah, well, tried to look up how many there were overall, and couldn't find the number. Yeah,
2: that's that might be a little out of date, but that's the last count I had. Um, so the origin the law and economics movement typically these articles typically explored the idea that some um, doctrine uh, or statutory variation. Uh, some doctrines of the common law was efficient or some statutory variation was inefficient and often came up with, uh, with a meaningful result. Um, in the behavioral law and economic scholarship, it's always a proposal for intervention. And by the way, in a recent article, it was shown that 95% of these articles do not consider the possibility that the regulators might suffer cognitive biases. <laughs> So government is rational, has all of the information, all of the answers, and therefore it's obvious that we should cede our decision-making uh, authority to, uh, to uh, the Yale-trained graduates. Um, well, false consciousness is a hardy perennial it's kind of like the notion that there's a third way of social organization that, uh, that doesn't suffer from either the arbitrary nature of government or the unforgiving ways of the, of the marketplace. And the staying power, I think, reflects the uh, romantic notion that government can help individuals overcome their frailties and conform their behavior to, uh, to their stated goals. Now, the Obama administration has made, as I said, has made behavioral law and economics the foundation, certainly a central part of the foundation for its regulatory program. Uh, In uh, December, I think it was, the Cameron government of the United Kingdom appointed a nudge committee, so-called after the Thaler and Sunstein book called Nudge, to see whether they couldn't uh, uh, spiff up their regulations better to take into account these, uh, these frailties. How successful this will be, is yet to be determined, of course, it's going to depend a, a great deal on the ability of these um, political appointees to persuade the permanent staff of the virtue of this. Increasingly, however, the permanent staff will be hired from the law schools where they will have already been exposed to this. This chart tracks the, the rise of the, the number of articles in behavioral law and economics. It's very, uh, Kahneman and Tversky's work, as I said, was done, finished really in 83. Others carried it on thereafter. Uh, There was, I think, one citation of uh, an article with behavioral uh, economics in it uh, in the period in the mid-'80s. And then, um, let's see, there was only one in the period 1980 through 1984 that mentioned behavioral economics. In the five years 2005 to 2009, which is the latest data that I could get, there were 993 such articles. Student and faculty authored, so this is where the academy is now this is this is probably half of this has happened since Wally's manuscript went to the publisher, um, but it 's not going away anytime soon, and we 're going to have to deal with the consequences. Thank you
0: Thank you, uh, Judge Ginsburg um, and in fact. Um, it's the future of this uh, may, be, uh, may be enhanced by uh, such institutions as NPR's Marketplace, or as we talk of it, as Anti-Marketplace, which uh, every night pushes behavioral economics uh, and now behavioral economics of law so that we can be sure that we know what's wrong in Kansas. Um, which is, of course, the home of false consciousness. Uh, all right, let's hear some um, uh, some questions from you, either for Wally or for Judge Ginsburg, uh, just to raise your hand and uh, identify yourself. Um, let's have the gentleman right back here and, and, if, and in any affiliation you have and to whom your question may be addressed.
3: Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Richard Ranger. I'm with the American Petroleum Institute, but I'm here, out of my own personal interest, um, mm-hmm. Professor Olson, Judge Ginsburg, thank you. Somewhere out there, there's a marketplace. There's a marketplace of clients who seek attorneys either to pursue a remedy for a wrong or to defend against the, that pursuit that uh, is being brought by some other party. Those clients expect a certain measure of expertise. They accept a certain groundedness and practicalities. They expect a certain familiarity with, if not behavioral law and economics, maybe some basic economics, maybe the ability to grasp the subject matter, even if the attorney in question is not a specialist in the field, the ability to understand engineering or real property or finance or something. I guess my question is this, the not in any way discounting what you're characterizing for law schools. Do you discern a difference in terms of the graduates and the people coming out of law schools in terms of the degree to which they're enmeshed in multiple courses on constitutional law, or the degree to which that their academic path has grounded them more in some of what I consider sort of the basic building blocks of a legal practice?
1: Uh, Judge, would you like to go first since you actually hire new graduates as clerks all the time?
2: Well, the is this on the, um, the starting point? I think for what's taught in the law schools has been the observation that it doesn't matter um, that the 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 ability the skill of thinking like a lawyer and and uh, uh, doing the things one needs to do as a lawyer can be uh, transmitted without regard to any particular subject matter. There's a nod in the direction, more than a nod, in most places, in the direction of the common law first-year basic curriculum that's more or less in place. While you mentioned the the banishment of property from the Yale curriculum, I hadn't realized that. Um, but uh, so that uh, that has created uh, an opportunity for people to go to law school and and leave having learned um, about none of the su- subjects that you might have expected, but they can also learn those subjects. They are there. So it it actually is a matter of the good judgment of the student, or actually I know a member of the faculty at Yale who started every year giving a talk for the uh, first-year students about course selection and saying it was important to have at least some of these um, seemingly conventional courses. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal some years ago in which they person responsible for admissions at Yale, as it was, said they could fill the class, which is small, it's about maybe 150, they could fill the class with people who had a perfect score on the LSAT, the admissions test, but they don't do so uh, because they, they choose people with a high score, uh, but uh, something else that's interesting about them. And it's true that I mean, virtually—I well, don't know about virtually everyone, but everyone I've met from recent graduates of the Yale Law School and clerkship applicants and so on—are <clears throat> interesting and are accomplished. They don't know much law. Um, They—they're very quick to learn it on the job. Now, that's not—not not, that's an extreme case. I mean, I've had about 75 law clerks, and only four have been from Yale. Um, because it's impossible to evaluate their transcripts. Everyone is an angel or an angel minus. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's not worth my time because there are plenty of good people from schools that have grading systems.
1: Um, <clears throat> Your question is the subject of this, it seems to me, enormous debate now in the profession and and seeping into the schools themselves, because uh, this disconnect between what uh, the institutions hiring young lawyers feel they need and what the schools are doing uh, is sensed by almost everyone, and yet it's very hard to get out of. You might think that uh, the tactic of going down to school number 15, if it's in fact, producing more qualified graduates would, would be more widely p- pursued. But the stratification problem with law schools is, as uh, so far as I can tell, unique among American institutions. And this, of course, is the same group that will talk such a good etal- egalitarian line when you uh, ask them about the need for equality in society. But they are much more jealous than debutants about the rating differences between a 6 and a 7 or a 12 and a 14. And... Uh, it reinforces each other in part because everyone participating in the system will go to the higher-ranked school as a, a, a student or a faculty member, which means that the top schools are routinely getting all the people that they want. Uh, you know, even if their uh, ed- educational methods are not as good. Um, you con- contrast with medical schools, for example, where um, a study was recently done and. Although medical schools have high status and low status, it just doesn't make that much difference uh, to hospitals, to the future of a uh, recently trained doctor, whether the status was high or only medium high uh, in in medical school. uh, They have managed to escape this weird uh, search for, for, for status. Uh, One possible pressure point in changing things is the accreditation system. The accreditation system uh, makes law schools do all sorts of things to homogenize them, to make sure that they're all putting out pretty much the same uh, product. The Washington and Lee experiment is interesting. Uh, If we busted up the accreditors' control of more different aspects, uh, we would get more experiments, many of which would fail, but it might show out the path for some useful new innovations.
2: Wally, you you cited an article, I wanted to just get the date on it, by my colleague, Harry Edwards, um, entitled, uh, The Growing Disjunction Between Legal Education and the Legal Profession. That was published in
4: 1992. Trevor? Hi, uh, Trevor Burrus from the Cato Institute. I was wondering if either of you would comment about connecting the law school phenomenon to the undergrad phenomenon, at least possibly in a post 60s going to undergrad getting a humanities degree and not knowing what to do with it type of thing i know charles what something that charles murray would talk about maybe we're over, maybe we're sending too many people to undergrad who think that they just deserve a job when they get out no matter what degree they have and then they don't know what to do well the
1: <clears throat> the question was about people going into law because uh it's the great thing to go into if you're not really sure what else and you've got a liberal arts background i I vividly remember when I was an undergraduate at Yale, uh, people had buttons up saying M-I-S-C, period, miscellaneous, uh, because they were the, whatever it was, quarter of a class, third of a class, that was neither intending pre-med or pre-law. And, of course, pre-law meant that you couldn't stand the sight of blood. Um, the, um, or you didn't do well enough on the science courses. Um, the, um, and you wound up with all the metaphorical blood anyway. But the, um, Law was, in fact, a dreadful choice for many of these people who d- drifted into it because it seemed to be the highest status and most promising thing for a liberalized person to do because uh, legal practice, as we know, I mean, there's all this burnout, there are uh, all of these miserable, um, you know, careers of, of people who have gotten onto the uh, big law uh, treadmill because they've got to pay off the enormous debts and things. And... In the years since then, it has been, word has been seeping back somewhat about the uh, unsatisfactory nature of uh, you know, the first 10 or perhaps 20 or even 30 years of career uh, for uh, so many new, new law graduates. Uh, you know, The first signs are appearing that maybe uh, applications will not march up smartly every single year to the end of time and so forth.
0: Uh, this gentleman right here on the aisle. Here, wait, microphone, please.
4: Student at Georgetown Law, Brenner Facel, just came from property, actually.
0: <laughs> and was they it still, They still, still teach still it.
4: Yeah, uh, but this is a more of a libertarian question. There was some concern about international human rights. Also, taking international law as an elective, and yesterday we talked about international human rights. So this is all on point. But my question is, as a libertarian, and I assume most of us are here, are what is the real concern if if this inst- if this body, I guess the, the UN, is imposing rights that may in fact be negative rights against a state which expand liberty. I mean, that might be good. Uh, now, is the concern that the, the body itself is nebula- nebulous, not accountable, and we have this like Tocquevillian worry about mild despotism, or is it that too many of these positive rights are being injected there?
1: Well, <clears throat> let me try to, uh, answer. We evaluate developments in governance, not just on whether we approve of the momentary result in, uh, moving things closer to laissez or whatever the goal is, but also on whether it, uh, is done, uh, procedurally and with, um, legitimacy in in such a way as we can generalize uh you know oh so it's that institution that gets to make that decision okay we'll live with that uh libertarians may not yet be used to thinking about international governance but we are pretty used to thinking of issues of federalism and uh to most of us with some exceptions, being content with the idea that America has done better because it is a genuinely federalist system in which states have quite a lot of autonomy. Um, This benefits us in a couple of different ways. First, uh, if all else comes to it, we can always move to a state that we like better. Uh, But beyond that, uh, we have the laboratory for failed experiments in which bad ideas take uh, root in a few places and then are exposed as bad... you know, rather than being adopted by the, uh, a single authority that can impose on them on, on everyone. Um, and to the extent that we believe that voters have an important input in correcting uh, policies that are working very poorly, a local government may work better at hearing the voice of distressed uh, citizens who are suffering under uh, badly conceived regulation just as the immediate resort to the federal government instead of state uh, law or governance or decision making uh, increases the likelihood of one big disaster in which some awful new thing will be adopted nationwide and and you know too late to back out of it uh, so the uh, adoption by world authority Um, which almost inevitably is going to lock many of the features of democratic legitimacy uh, that uh, the federal government still uh, can reasonably claim, uh, in that you know the people are not voting; it's the governments that get to appoint the delegations. The uh, you know many of the governments are quite tyrannical, and, and I mean the the legitimacy issues almost speak for themselves. But, but even were the other governments participating in world governance uh, as all as nice and gentle as uh, one might imagine, Canada is, if not for its uh, tribunals. On, uh, on On speech uh, or or New Zealand, okay, New Zealand is my example, even if they were all as nice as New Zealand, uh, I would still think that the uh, federalism principles writ large would be reason enough to say, sorry, you know sometimes you guys in Geneva will make the decisions better. I'd still rather have them made here
0: yes, that uh, though Wally, you're moving toward what is the real problem to me in the whole uh, international human rights uh, agenda which has come out of Yale and in particular Harold Coe, the dean of late of Yale Law School, who is now the legal counsel at the State Department, is the problem of so-called universal jurisdiction. And universal jurisdiction has a way of undermining national sovereignty and the theories of legitimacy that underpin national sovereignty. Uh, The theory of legitimacy that underpins universal jurisdiction has yet to be discerned satisfactorily by many of us, and uh, that, to me, is the main problem. Uh, Doug, did you want to say something more on that oh, score?
2: Uh, briefly, I, I shared uh, the questioner's misgivings at times in the book, um, not, frankly, so much about the human rights chapters because, uh, because of the reasons Wally just gave, really, and you, Roger, as well. But the, what, doesn't, what hasn't come out in our discussion today and that is um, rife in the book, is the way in which the, the other ideas, the, the group rights, the affirmative uh, demands, uh, and so on, are offered um, without any, qualif- I shouldn't say qualification, without objection. There is a uniformity of view among the faculties, while well, he did not mention that, uh, that is uh, uniformly uh, statist, uh, uniformly, um, um, sort of the pro- uh, programmatic. Uh, would you say the, the Democratic Party at uh, at the lectern? Yeah. yeah. So I would say the left wing of the Democratic Party, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, w- that goes without uh, comment or or even acknowledgement. In 1975, when I was um, appointed as an assistant professor at Harvard, I was told later that at the faculty meeting. The uh, prior vote had been on um, a schoolmate of mine from Chicago um, who uh, was teaching one year at Berkeley and then moved as an assistant professor to Harvard. And um, he had just, so he would both go into Chicago and uh, we both had um, vaguely suspect uh, credentials uh, for that reason and, and related ones. And the question was raised, well we just voted X an offer why, are we should, why should we care about? Why should we be interested in Ginsburg? Now that was that was emblematic of the attitude. Uh, I don't know about the thirty years without there being a Republican appointed to faculty. I can pretty much calculate twenty-five though. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> numbers must not be my strong suit. On that. <laughs> well, well, Doug, I just don't remember. Doug, some uh,
0: I can point. go you one better uh, in seventy-nine. I was denied an appointment in the philosophy department after completing my Ph.D. at Chicago. Um, And the chairman, Henry Veach, at the time told me afterwards that the reason was that I had a strong letter in my dossier from Milton Friedman, who was on my committee. And that was after he had won the Nobel Prize. So
2: uh, Dennis Coyle up there in the back. Roger, can I just add one thing? Sure. This This is why the federal Society has made such a contribution. Oh, absolutely. But they're not primarily within the faculty. They're primarily by a visiting speaker and then a faculty member. Well, that's
0: where the Institute for Humane Studies has come in, and they have done a yeoman's job of placing people in Not only law faculties, but uh, uh, colleges and universities across the country, one at a time, and it's starting to show results. So they are really to be commended for that. We're going to have time for just one more question. Dennis Coyle up there from uh, Catholic University, although not from the law school, from the political science department, if I'm not mistaken, though he does write about law.
2: Uh, Yes, thank you, Uh, and perhaps more effectively at times than people from law schools. But (laughs) I I, I appreciate uh, Roger. Well, they
0: have only JDs, what can we say?
2: Right, and they owe that money and staff, and they have to do something. But uh, I appreciate Roger's last point about IHS because it goes to my question, which I'd like both panelists to consider. Uh, I agree very much with the the, the, uh, description of the problem. What do we do about it? I'm not sure there's any reason for optimism that within law schools or due to external pressures, uh, we can expect
3: this to change much. How would it change? If you could transform legal education, uh, what would it be? And do you think there are any serious prospects for that to
2: happen? Thank
0: you. Or to rephrase Dennis's question, how are you going to change legal education if your faculty is, what was it, Stanford, 28 to 1? Uh, that you've got to go out of your way to skew it that badly. That's not a natural selection.
1: Let me mention a couple of the um, pleasant developments, and whether we'll be able to generalize them, I'm not sure, but... Among the developments, of course, is um, law and economics, of course, was uh, established with tremendous success uh, uh, you know a, a while back and certainly did diversify the ideological thinking and often in a direction that I find uh, agreeable uh, so that was one uh, major thing that was done more recently uh, the uh, decision by the leadership at george mason uh, uh, law school in northern virginia to um, uh, you know to go against the flow and uh, hire the sorts of people who were not getting the offers that they deserved elsewhere and basically build a law school that while having interesting and and Distinguished thinkers on the, the left and center as well had a lot of interesting and distinguished thinkers on, on the conservative and libertarian side. Um, uh, they made a big success of this. I mean, they've rocketed up. You know, they've they've greatly raised the visibility of the school. I mean, it's it's been a success in almost every way I can think. And it might even uh, tempt some other school to, uh, you know, think that they shouldn't be alone. That maybe there should be two such schools instead of one. That would be. Uh, a healthy kind of competition. Uh, <coughs> you know, there is a cynical old view of academia which says that basically uh, all of the old generation has to simply retire out and has to be replaced by n- new people who have different errors to pursue instead of the old errors. And um, much as um, a big Impact was made by effectively the founding of an entirely new school in behavioral law and economics. So um, if new schools are founded, which analyze law in new ways, or at least ways that are not currently being done, um, and every school feels they have to have one, uh, that all by itself produces 200 faculty positions for uh, young people who have learned the new, whatever the new next thing is. Maybe we should be thinking of, of what candidates are for
2: that.
0: Doug, did you want to add something to that?
2: Well, well, just uh, I'm reminded of George Stigler's uh, essay in his book on uh, the history of economic thought. And he talks about the the inherent bias toward theory and against empiricism because of the great uh, strain it places on graduate students to do empirical work. And he closes the essay by saying, but I don't propose to do anything about it. And, and that's more or less, uh, uh, I mean, my attitude. This is, uh, um, I don't have any great creative solution for it. Uh, people who are, uh, who are younger and have fresher ideas will probably have to find those solutions.
0: Well, Stigler always was the um, empiricist. Uh, as a rationalist myself, I'm not opposed to theory. I am opposed to irrational theory, which is so much of what we have well, today I mean, in the law
2: schools. I mean, empiricism is, is what is, would be a helpful antidote if there were a, an, an empirical uh, inquiry routinely with every uh, doctrinal class or course.
0: Yeah. Well, without getting into a debate between the French and the English, uh, I think we'll... Um, we will call this to to an end and have our wine and cheese upstairs and let's have a warm round of applause for our speakers.